0: I'm David Clayton and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Dyst, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode 12, why population growth is good for the world. Last week we talked about nature
1: of beauty and the transcendentals and this week we're taking a, a bit of a turn into a different topic, which may or may not relate closely to that one. We're talking about population, and you're making a kind of contrarian argument that more people are better for the planet, that, it's, uh, that it just is a, a better overall world that we'll live in if there are more people. And this is kind of contrary to the doomsday arguments that you so often hear, that the more people we have, the faster we're headed towards some sort of apocalyptic scenario. So, uh, why don't you start off by just introducing your argument and uh, telling us where we're going to be headed?
0: Okay. So, um, yes, I believe that the, the that uh, population growth is good for the world, um, and that the more people we have, the more wealth is created and the the less poverty we have. But I also believe that, that just to connect in some way with last week's talk um that the world will be more beautiful that actually man has a part to play in the cultivation of the world around him in 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 theological terms you'd say in the creative work of god and so therefore the more people there are the uh the more he can work towards that end and the world does he can raise up the beauty of the world Through his culture and through the way he interacts with the environment. Uh, Again, that is something that will uh, be counter to what many people believe, I realise. So, I'll I'll give um, a couple of arguments, uh, theoretical arguments, if you like, as to why um, I believe this is so, and then uh, after that we can go on to some evidence that I think supports this. Uh, The first is, um, an argument that comes out of uh, what I've heard, uh, out of talks that I've heard, an argument that comes out of talks that I've heard that talk about the um, entrepreneurial spirit and how that um, wealth is created through um, the uh, creative spirit of man, and that uh, that is always something that uh, worries uh, people. Because you can't rely or you can't predict precisely um, how people are going to be creative because you don't know what, what they're going to do in advance. It needs that person to have that insight and somebody else can't see it. And so uh, they, that, that would worry people. Now, uh, I heard, for example, a talk that uh, someone called George Gilder gave Uh, recently he was uh, in discussion with uh, Ben Shapiro actually and he talked about this the creativity uh, that is uh, just part of the the process of doing business looking at patterns of behavior seeing uh, how that pattern can be completed can be fulfilled uh, by giving uh, providing something that other people need now uh, what's that got to do with population well um, that requires uh, cooperation with people uh, and therefore networks of people and uh, personal relationships. And my argument would be very simple. The more personal relationships you have in the world, the greater the potential for that creativity to have an impact. And of course, want because of the presence of that network and everyone is uh, by... Uh, certain degrees of freedom i think it's six degrees of separation Uh, every they say every person is in connection with everybody else once one idea comes to the uh, to the fore uh, one contribution that can benefit everybody through that network Um, and so the more we have the more relationships we have the more personal interactions the greater potential for creativity in the whole uh, that will enable us to overcome difficulties or provide things that we need and things that sometimes we didn't even know we needed before we saw them. Um, now, the population argument goes further. I would say, in that, if you int- supposing there are six billion people in the world, uh, if that's the generally regarded as the current figure, um, if you introduce one person into the world. That's, a, that's not an, 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 an extra one relationship, that is an extra six billion relationships. Um, but in some way, each person is related to everybody else. There is a connection. Some are, extre- are distant, obviously, and some are close. But nevertheless, there is this connection. Um, and so um, introduction of one person increases, increases the number of relationships by six billion, the next person who arrives, it increases it by six billion and one. And so the addition of two people um, has caused uh, an exponential growth um, in the number of relationships. And so the potential uh, for uh, creativity, uh, for the, f- the force, if you like, to do good, uh, w- w- moves far faster, grows far quicker than the actual uh, population rate because the number of people has just increased by two.
1: Mm. So it
0: more than compensates for it. Um, My second argument is similar, but it's more theological. And this comes down to uh, my reading of Benedict XVI's uh, encyclicals, and particularly uh, Caritas in Veritate. And within that, he talks about the the nature of the economic transaction itself, where one person is in relation with, num- with another. Um, and what he says is that, uh, that wherever people are in relation, love is present. Um, that people working in cooperation, dealing with each other, um, even when we think of um, the, uh, the nature of the economic transaction in which there is self-interest, Uh, Now, I'm adding here to what Benedict says, I'm adding an explanation. Uh, But commonly it is felt that the the, the economic transaction is portrayed as two people acting in self interest um, and not really interested in the other. And Benedict says, well, uh, there there may well be, or I'm saying in, in interpretation, there may well be self interest, but inevitably there is an interest in the other. You can't you have to be thinking about somebody else and what they need assuming they're free uh, assuming they're free to interact and, uh, and th- otherwise they won't actually engage with you um, and so therefore in the context of an economic transaction you are thinking about the other person uh, the other point is that self-interest is not contrary to love uh, and this is something that will come out uh, in next week's podcast with Father Brad Elliot um, he wrote a great paper and I asked him to give a talk on this in which he looks at uh, the hierarchy of love uh, as uh, described by St Thomas Aquinas and uh, love of God comes highest then love of self, self interest then love of neighbour uh, because we can't love our neighbour unless we are agents capable of loving so we have to Look after ourselves first, and it goes even further than that. In that, the the self-interest is really a desire for happiness, and because God made us uh, to desire Him, and that and for our happiness to rest in Him, uh, it feels as we um, act and behave that if we do what is going to make us happy, actually, um, that is exactly in coincidence with our desire for God, the two are the same. Mm. Um, uh, People might think that that's that's not so. Of course that can be distorted, we can have a a wrong idea of what's going to make us happy. Um, But uh, remember that we were commanded to love our neighbour as ourselves, not instead of ourselves. Um, Now, to come back to the economic transaction, uh, therefore, uh, the fact that goods are exchanged when we're dealing with others uh, does not take anything away from the fact that uh, I'm seeking to... Uh, I, I have some self-interest, I'm seeking my own happiness, and uh, maybe slightly less in terms of my uh, my thoughts, um, I am also desiring the happiness of the other because I'm interested to know what he wants. Otherwise, I, he, I, he won't buy something from me or I can't buy from him. Um, and therefore... There is an action of love, properly ordered, uh, to the, the nature of the interaction in the economic transaction. And what Benedict says is that when love is there, God is there, that love is within that relationship. There is a, the relationship is an entity in itself, and God, if you like, is the glue that binds us together. God is love. And he says that the principle of love is superabundance, creation out of nothing and argues that that is the principle for the creation of wealth. Now, it's interesting that without any sort of theology, uh, that is the um, the basis of that. economists, I think, would argue in a transaction. That simply by two people uh, uh, enge- engaging in a transaction, I buy a pint of milk from you because I want the milk more than you want the money. Uh, and you want the money more than I want the milk, If I got that the right way around? Each of us, the the value of those goods has gone up uh, in our minds, and so that transaction has not created anything uh, material, but simply by changing the ownership, because each person values what they've got higher, um, value has been added, and and you'd say wealth has been created. And were you going to say something? I see you.
1: Well yeah, I think uh, these arguments are very familiar to anyone with a kind of free market bent, and um, they can you know if if you haven't heard them before, then I think that they can open you know open one's eyes to the the beauty of voluntary exchange. but I think that the most potent sort of criticisms come when you try to zoom out and look at the big picture and Look at how the world is structured, and people sort of envision that we're headed toward a world where either you know anything can be commodified, bought, and sold, um, or where the economic dimension of life takes on sort of an outsized role in um, in in our relationships and personal relationships and things like that. But I also wanted to get. To the question of, there seems to be kind of two issues. One is the the economic transactions and whether those can be considered, uh, whether those are are good broadly speaking, or um, the other one, which is whether having a, a greater volume of economic transactions as a result of a higher population. So how do these two things kind of come together? Couldn't someone argue that, you know, voluntary exchange uh, is good, but that it would be more beautiful if we had fewer people on the planet or something like that?
0: Um, well, what I would say is that the uh, the potential for the creation of wealth, again, because the number of relationships increases with population growth and the potential for the number of interactions increases exponentially with population. <laughs> and so the, the critical thing I would say with regard to... Um, poverty um, is the the amount of absolute poverty in the world and so uh, what we find is that um, as the population grows the amount of absolute poverty drops Um, and furthermore um, there are there are sites I'm going to put them on the the blog uh, in connection with this recording uh, but there are sites such as, I think it's called progress.org, which uh, chart these, these trends and show that, for example, more people have been brought out of poverty in the last 20 years than any time in, in history. Um, and that you can see that the world's GDP, the, the, the gross domestic product, that's a measure of the wealth created, if you like, um, goes up uh, exponentially, it seems, in parallel with population growth now we have to be careful um and say that uh correlation does not e- does not uh, indicate cause necessarily uh but it it is supporting evidence for what i'm saying um and certainly it seems to indicate that there's nothing to worry about yet hmm. um, and
1: well i i think we have to even be careful with that argument, because even if the absolute number of people being pulled out of poverty is greater than it's ever been, there the absolute number of people who are still living in what we consider abject poverty is also greater than it's ever been before.
0: Um, okay. Well, I would say then, what what's the best thing to do about it? Right. W- where do we go from here? Right. And I think that
1: there might be one line
0: of thought, even if
1: only subconsciously, that says that the best way to deal with it is to limit the number of people. And that wouldn't be what I would argue, but, uh, but I think that it, it, it is problematic to kind of just point to uh, a rise in overall wealth as uh, we, we, we could look and say, okay, the places where um, where the, you know, where the, this uh, not only the, um, is, is wealth growing, but the distribution is also occurring in a way that ensures that we're not just bringing, you know, uh, you know, millions or, or even billions of new poor people into the world subsisting at, at uh subsistence levels.
0: Right. I, I think that the, the evidence is that uh, while the, the the proportion of the poor is decreasing um, steadily as time goes on, and so therefore um, this says that uh, that. that Ultimately, it, it's a good thing that this trend continues. Um, the other question though, of course, is what's the alternative? Um, if we uh, decrease the amount of people, how do we decrease or reduce human activity? How can we reduce it? Um, one answer is reduce the number of births. So that's contraception. Well, as a Catholic, I would say that's not a price. That the means don't justify the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Another is abortion, uh, and that is even worse. So it's no good killing some people in order to alleviate the the suffering uh, of others or to say that the lives they would have had would not have been great. It's always better to be alive and poor than never to have been born at all, I would say. Um, And now I can see that some wouldn't agree with that. The other thing is that the evidence seems to be that the more you try and restrict human activity, the more it, it curtails uh, economic activity and the people who suffer the most are the people at the bottom of the tree, right. not the top. Um, that you effectively go, you, you, We don't really have an option of going backwards in time to a smaller population and somehow retain the advantages that we have. Or maybe the West could, maybe peer, people here in, the, the, in California could, but they would be living um, the good life um, at the expense of, uh, they really would be uh, increasing the poverty of others if they did that. Uh, the only way that, allow, that, I, that I know of that allows for uh, the alleviation of poverty and a smaller population of the poor is actually the growth of the population and capitalism and wealth creation. Um, and uh, so that's what I'm advocating. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this question of uh, the exponential growth. And it does require this trust because um, the, the argument is based upon something that cannot be predicted uh, definitively. There's no cause and effect. You can't use a scientific law to predict creativity or ideas Mm -hmm. and so whilst the evidence seems to be that always human ingenuity is there it's wherever there are people and they find ways of overcoming things um, there's no scientific law which tells you that Um, and so people who uh, are worried about that and want a scientific law to to define the the future for them are not going to find one and so they would worry a great deal about that Um, And it tends to be people of faith who believe in um, the soul, if you like, and the ingenuity of man and inspiration, um, and have a trust and optimism in the future that are more inclined to accept these arguments, I would say.
1: Hmm. Okay. So then, yeah, how can we point to some uh, changes that we would would make in the... uh, Thinking of um, people who are who are anti population growth uh, in order to convince them, what's what's the actual evidence?
0: Well, the evidence is that I would produce um, is these um, charts of population growth and uh, wealth creation, um, and that's perhaps the most striking. And you see exponential growth. So what you see is a graph that is almost flat. It's increasing very, very slightly, up to about eighteen hundred, and then you almost you can't. It doesn't fit on the scale. It goes up so steeply um, after that point. Now that's true of the population, and it's true of the wealth created as well. Um, And uh, similarly, there are indications of. Uh, the, the degree of absolute poverty and the, the numbers are going down. Now <clears throat> there may be arguments that, and I think this is a, a strong argument that for all that um, this might be true now surely at some point there is a limit that there, there's only so much space in the world um, there's only so much water to drink I mean that is mm-hmm. not an infinite amount Hmm. It's
1: interesting because I think this is actually where I would also start to disagree with you that it won't be it, w- it wouldn't be resource constraints that would be the the most compelling reason to limit population i mean I do think that the the theoretical limits of freshwater production if we could you know we can um, we can imagine technologies for desalinization and such that uh, you know and we could imagine uh you know kind of either skyscrapers or just taking advantage of, uh, you know, land that is currently unoccupied and, you know, terraforming Mars. There are all these possibilities that it would seem like, there's somewhat science fiction to, to think about, but I don't think that they're outside of the realm of possibility if we're, if we're positing that human ingenuity is the ultimate resource and that it grows exponentially with more people.
0: I, I, I would agree with you. Um, I would agree with your arguments, but I, I think some people might if they're limited to thinking what happens in the world, uh, they might think in that way is what I'm suggesting. And, but as, as you're saying that, that the, the universe is pretty big (laughs) and and I I think it would take a lot of people to use a solar system yeah, the planet and the the atmosphere. Yeah. The earth. And also the earth is pretty big. And um, at some points we may outgrow the earth, perhaps. Uh, perhaps, but even then, I think this argument for ingenuity and creativity is, uh, is a pretty strong one. Uh, but we're a long way from that yet. And the other thing is that, that all of this presupposes that the, the resources, the things that we review, we, we view as necessary. Oil, for mm-hmm. example, will be the same ones in 10,000 years time. And we don't know that that's the case, even we might have depleted all the oil, <clears throat> but it doesn't matter because nobody's using oil anymore. Oil was worthless before, whatever it was, 1850 or something. It was just used for light, and it wasn't until the invention of the uh, the internal combustion engine that the whole thing skyrocketed. Skyrocketed, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's something like that will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, w- the idea of what we perceive as a resource is likely to shift in time, um, and. As I say, I, I don't think the option of going back in time is there. Actually, I just don't, I, I think that we would just become a, a, a race that would collapse in on itself. Um, it, it, the, Agreed. Um, that would be my my argument. And I know that people intuitively would struggle to accept that.
1: Yeah. So this, I think, gets to a little bit of what I was thinking of earlier when I'm imagining. You know, we have. Uh, a lot of population growth, sometimes in places where there is poor quality governance, and as a result, we see that the commons are badly managed. Yes. Uh, water is polluted. Yes. And people, you know, public <coughs> health suffers. So I think this is what people sort of imagine uh, when they think of population growth. And then in the places that have used wealth in order to, uh, you know, limit the pollution and kind of manage it better, places like uh you know the united states is probably a prime example where we see that the rise in wealth has gone along, gone hand in hand with uh greater concern for the environment and we can start to value uh environmental protection as uh, a good that we purchase more of in a sense so we passed you know laws that um that that limit the emissions that can be put into the air and most people i think are. Pretty happy with those, but it also it's a mistake to think that it's a product of just the legislation itself. It's a product of growing productivity and wealth, which translates into shifting relative preferences of now that I can afford to heat my house um, for relatively cheaply, then now I can be concerned with you know making sure that the thing that I use to heat my house doesn't also cause me to you know or my kids have asthma
0: or yeah. something like that. I think the environment is, is, a, is a, an interest, a very interesting one to focus on because um, it is one thing that uh, I, nobody is in nobody's interest to destroy the environment. Um, no matter how much money you're making from it, every person, uh, or should we say every class of people, <laughs> uh, are, will have children and grandchildren And are going to have people like you and me who are concerned about what the next generations are going to have and so I just simply don't believe that um, that it's anybody is motivated by wealth and self-interest in in, to that degree that they have no care for their neighbor or for their family Mm -hmm. or for their next generation Um, and so Um, I I simply don't have a hold to this picture of the industrialist who doesn't care. Now some may play down in their minds the impact of pollution or something like that. There are all all these things that you talked about there but on the whole what happens is that uh, there is a response Uh, initially you do have pollution or you can have negative effects and there are some people who are just plain insane or um driven by bad motivations there are a few mm-hmm. but on the whole um that the, the uh, people will respond to what they see and they will want to change it and sometimes the government can help that with legislation but I think it, it, a stronger force if not stronger is just the desire of people to be rid of it and if it becomes known that a certain process is causing the river to be polluted, people will actually consider or not whether or not they want to support that business if right. if it's causing the the river to be polluted i think the people who cause the pollution on the whole many of the the company isn't a sort of abstract person without you know who, who's a single entity it consists of individuals and people who have shareholders, to li- uh, a
1: board of directors, uh, CEO, workers,
0: who workers. are people as well, and, yeah. uh, and are consumers and um, would enjoy the river. And so um, even if their jobs depend on it, they, they're not going to want to contribute to the pollution of the river, or many of them won't. And so these things will have an impact. And I think within it, free, um, whether it's uh, voluntary exchange, it contains a mechanism to correct these things.
1: Yeah, and I think there could be a a pushback to the idea that, you know, everyone in the corporation has the same incentive as the general public not to pollute. You do find some situations where, you know, the factory along the the side of the river, if they could conveniently discharge their pollution into the river, um, you know, the, the people who are making the most money from that process might... Decide, you know, might be in their rational interest. They, you know, don't swim in that particular river. But the point is generally taken that um, I think it's in the self-interest of the corporation to have a, a good image. And laws do play some role yeah. in kind of uh, resource management, guiding the, the the collective to regulate its commons with... Um, but uh, yeah so I'm kind of I'm curious to get your thoughts on what the link is between uh, the kind of theological argument and the places where people have come up with uh, better systems for managing the commons or or, you know how does how has maybe Christianity uh, exerted an influence in countries that have uh, you know used their wealth to um, not perfectly but but Gradually put more and more uh, resources into preserving the environment?
0: Well, um, I would say that I would just produce a a general argument and say that uh, Christianity uh, does not uh, teach us that we can view the world as just a resource to be used. Um, Man is called to cultivate and nurture and to be a good steward, Um, and so that means preserving. environment for for the next generations and um, actually his role man is part of nature Mm. he is as part of creation as much as the rest of the world and that is his natural role is to raise it up Um, and so I would say that uh, there are there is a place for agriculture for you've heard me talk about growing uh, cultivation for beauty um, man ought to interact with the environment and his activity is not inherently unnatural. Um, he can raise up its beauty. So there's no doubt that man can fulfill this role well, but by the same token he can do this badly. Uh, he can uh, destroy the environment or he, there's a whole spectrum of activity where it can be partially good, partially bad, no, mm-hmm. there's nothing that is perfect. Um, but so therefore, it is important that we uh, consider the culture and um, we, and I think the propagation of the faith and evangelization and uh, encouraging people to view the world in this way is important. Um, and But I'm not um, pessimistic about this. I, as a Christian, I believe that ultimately that is the end for the, the world, that Christianity will... Pervade the church will never uh, be destroyed, um, and I would say that also that the damage that is done is not is never irreparable. Um, th- th- think about the way that uh, the, the great pu- disasters. Um, something that I heard recently is that. Uh, there was a huge oil spill in Ala- in Alaska that caused a lot of the sort of jump started a lot of the sort of modern environmental. Exxon Valdez. That's or? it. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, and so th- they sent people up there to try and clean it up, and they couldn't hope. There was so much oil, they just simply couldn't hope to do it. Mm. Um, and. So they, they cleaned up part of it, and then part of it, they just said, well, we've just got to leave it. Apparently, the bit that's bounced back the quickest is the part that men never try to clean up. Hmm. Um, now, that needn't be the case. It could be that man's ingenuity could actually make something greater come out of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't try. But again, I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic about this. Also, when I look at the, uh, the, the effect of man, that the culture of man... We tend to think of it as something that is in opposition with the natural world and is constantly butting heads with it. I think because of the of the ugliness of so much of the modern culture, um, it's it's just a sort of gut feeling. You look at modern cities and you feel that these are concrete scars on the landscape. Uh, wherever man goes, he seems to have a an effect that. Um, it destroys the beauty, that, that is a perception. Um, now, I, th- I don't think it's necessarily correct. I think it's, as I said, if you look at the way that um, traditional farming is done, it, it is extremely beautiful. That is where the beauty of Europe comes from, the mm-hmm. European landscape. If you look at the, the way that cities were built up to about before the Second World War, they are beautiful places to be. And you, you can imagine um, approaching a city from the countryside and seeing this jewel in the crown if you see what I mean and that's how pilgrims in the past would have described approaching Chartres or something like that so that mm-hmm. they would look at the work of man and say this is the crowning glory of what we're seeing now Um, Something has gone wrong in the culture in in today's world and modern cities tend not to be viewed in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean that that they're going to be like that forever. I think people are beginning to be aware that there's an ugliness there. They're searching for ways to fulfill the the purposes of the buildings that are also beautiful and that will change. And, And I think that one of the responsibilities of Christians is to engage with the modern world and find solutions through our creativity and inspiration that allow for the fulfillment of this uh, the utility that is required of it as as maybe in stark economic terms um, but then also add to it the greater utility of its beauty um, that always points to god and reminds man of his ultimate end even in the most mundane office building Um, now I, I, again I, as a christian i'm optimistic for the about the future and i believe that that is possible and actually i see signs of that happening not all of it driven by christianity it's it's natural for man to want to do something about uh, the the places that he lives and make them better and on the whole people would like to see that
1: yeah so if i can try to summarize it seems like you're making kind of an invitation for people to consider possible futures where the the source of population growth is coming from the same place that will also serve to revive the culture as a whole so it's not just uh, you know if we look at like um, dynamics of population dynamics of uh, you know certain animals they tend to vary uh, based on how much food there is available and then there's this Malthusian cycle um, where we can, you know, we can imagine that if, if we were just making the argument like, hey, we've got a lot of uh, food built up, let's just start having more kids, that could lead to uh, a less than uh, beautiful future. But if we're hoping that this uh, kind of openness to more new life than the networks of, that come from more people and the ultimate resource as uh, an economist, Julian Simon referred to it, of human ingenuity that if these go hand in hand uh, then it will produce a future that is better not worse
0: yes and uh, um, it's we need there might be a few it might be a jaggedy edge graph if I could call it that I think the underlying trend to is use that, a technical term yeah yes yeah, so I, I think graph. that I think that's what the way that the sort of mathem- mathematicians refer to it yeah um, the that's Uh, there'll be ups and downs and just thinking about for example the uh, industrial revolution um, huge benefits to that a rise in population because the capacity for food production and wealth was greatly increased Um, but initially certainly problems You, you went into the cities and the infrastructure just was not set up to deal with the people and so you had terrible problems of sewage and um, Terrible living conditions just because Mm. of the the sheer numbers of people. There's no doubt about that, but um, Very quickly there was a response to it and there was some some of it was legislative, but as much was due just to the the, was the the response was contained within society itself that was growing Um, and I think it's interesting, for example, I saw this uh, just uh, on the question of cleaning up the River Thames. Uh, the They had something called the Great Stink, I think, one year, and uh, this forced the, lawn, uh, the, the the Thames was so full of stu- sewage in the 19th century, mm. um, and they had a long, hot summer in Britain, and the smell even reached the houses of parliament, so they decided they have got to do something about this. So what did they do and this is in um free market Victorian England, uh, they built a sewage system. And it was one of the, the one of the most amazing stories was the creation of this huge sewage system in London, hmm. which is still really the basis of the sewage infrastructure, I think, in London today. Hmm. Um, and now that wasn't just about members of Parliament thinking, I can't stand the smell when I go to work. Mm. That this, this was about people genuine as well, genuinely caring for um, others. And in the process then, London became a clean place and a better place to live for a greater number of people than had ever lived there before. And all of that was made possible by the, the, the factors that we've been describing. Um, so there were problems but then there's a there's a mechanism for response which is included within it uh, which is um, which really it always encourages me to think it'll be there in the future
1: yeah I think we see this pattern uh, to some extent in um, in Scripture where we have kind of you know warnings of the, the imminent destruction of of Jerusalem or of some other place and you know sometimes people don't you know the people of God even don't heed the message in time and the result is some sort of captivity or or destruction but other times um God relents in his mercy because people kind of incline their their ear to him um so this is I think you are kind of making a an argument or I'm going to frame it as an invitation to Faith that this future that, that we're imagining is possible if we keep God as a central component.
0: Yes, and also there is this sense that we are driven, there, there is an end, a purpose if you like, that's calling us mm. as, as, a, as a people. Um, now, I find it easier to believe in that because um, since I converted, I live my own life much more in, in line with that, mm-hmm. that um, I have to trust in certain things and, and living life on a basis, just in my, my personal life on a basis, that there is a loving God who wants me to be happy and where there is evil, a greater good will come out of it, mm-hmm. um, is a principle that I did, it was just a leap of faith in, in the way that I live my life. And what I found was that it worked, that I was happier, and that made me then to believe with greater conviction that it was true, and when I faced difficulties later on, to worry about them slightly less, and, and to uh, uh, reach for God as the answer. Yeah. Um, you've heard me talk about this in the past, pray for rain and dig for water. You do what you can, but you trust in God to do what you can't. Yeah, um, And that always there's, there is a, there's a purpose in this that's for, for my good in some way. And th- therefore, I, having experienced that, I'm more inclined to say, well, I believe that that's true for all of us. Mm-hmm.
1: There is kind of a paradox here, just like there is with any kind of faith. Um, let's take the United States as an example of a country with slowing population growth. Maybe Japan is an even better example where maybe people are looking at the future as kind of bleak. You know, they, they see all these problems in the news and you know, that one of the big problems is just uh solvency for, for countries that have taken on so much debt uh, to, to fund all these, uh, you know, whether it's various social welfare programs or foreign wars, we've been spending beyond our means and it looks like there's no way out of this situation But uh, paradoxically, maybe the only way out of the situation is to have hope in the future, to act as if, um, you know, bringing new life into the world will be, you know, that that, uh, the future generations will enjoy a prosperity that we couldn't even imagine and kind of just act on that assumption. Because if we have a, a greater population that is producing more, uh, then that really offers kind of our best chance of uh, actually paying down the, the debt and becoming solvent again.
0: Um, yes, I, I think you're right. Uh, you, I mean, you're more clued into the economics than me. But um, I think this the pattern of people worrying about the future and then um, predicting all sorts of desperate things happening um, and that the, if the, the, the population increases we're going to be in trouble um, has been, is as old as man himself, I think. Mm. Um, now, as I say, past performance doesn't necessarily indicate the future, but it's not a bad indication of it, I think, uh, in this case. Um, and so, yes, I think that there's, there's no reason that we shouldn't be optimistic. So
1: why might people be hesitant to take this leap to faith? Uh, why do you think people are, are fearful of the population increase
0: scenarios? Well, I one is that I don't think they're aware of the arguments, that, that, that most of what you hear is um, is exactly the opposite. Uh, but second, I think that even if they heard the arguments, it, it, it's exactly this issue that... that um, most people will uh, for all the fact that they will claim to be listening to the science or following the stats actually what they do is they um, extend the pattern for humanity from their own lives and uh, I I just know from my own life (laughs) that a life without God without faith is a, is a, a life of fear that's the, I worried about the future I, I tried to uh, ignore it or blot it out or just pretend that it wasn't happening or in some cases prepare for it neurotically mm. um, in a way that no one could ever manage the future you, you sort of end up desperately trying to manage everything because this desire to control which in terms of society is manifested in very often in getting the government, there's this there's, faith is not in God but in the government to provide, um, and it simply can't do it. Uh, the government is not a force for ingenuity and creativity, and will actually stifle it um, if it tries to get involved in that aspect of it. I'm not against all government, but it it can't provide wealth. It can't create wealth, um, and but in the end, I think it comes down to what. How people lead their lives personally, and they're, and they're just their, their personal philosophy of life. And the answer, therefore, is for us to is, is evangelization is the faith. Um, it doesn't surprise me that people have this view, and I think it's going to be a, a, an argument that will continue as long as there are people in some way. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, Conversations on Catholic Faith and Culture. For more information go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book go to amazon.com.